You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Faith and Belief, chaired by writer and broadcaster Marianne Seacart. Faith, belief and mind, what matters? Well, um, Julia thought we'd start the conference off gently with the small questions. Uh, We've got a fantastic panel to navigate us through them. Um, But first I thought I'd just tell you my favourite joke about faith. And it's particularly apt here in Snape and where we're going next in Alborough which had a really quite terrifying storm surge and floods um, just a couple of months ago. So the flood's on its way and people are having to be evacuated from the town. And the police row up in their boat to the house of the most pious woman in town. And they say, excuse me, madam, but you're going to have to leave your house. People are drowning out there. And she says, no, I'm not leaving. God has always helped me and he will do it again. So the police said, well, Fine, up to you, and uh, off they go, and the rain continues, and the waters carry on rising. She goes up to the first floor. The police come back in their coat, and they say, Madam, jump into the boat, please. It's really dangerous. You're going to drown. And she says, No, the good Lord has always saved me, and he'll do it again. Finally, the waters rise. She's up on her roof. The helicopter hovers overhead, and, and the pilot shouts through his loudspeaker, Madam, Madam, climb the rope. We have to save you. You will be drowned. No, she says, the good Lord has always saved me, and he will do it again. So she drowns, and she goes up to heaven, and she bumps into God, and she says, God, I thought you were going to save me. Why didn't you save me? He said, I did try to help. I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more do you want? <laughs> Anyway, I'd like to welcome the panel. First of all, if you could all come up here and I'll introduce you one by one. Julia Neuberger. She was Britain's second female rabbi. She's now senior rabbi at the West London Synagogue. She's been chief executive at the King's Fund. She's been a Liberal Democrat peer. She's written a book called The Moral State We're In. And uh, I have to declare an interest, I'm afraid, because I've known Julia since I was about that high. And she's quite the cleverest and kindest person I've ever met, I think. And next, um, Tim Montgomery, uh, who is a columnist in The Times and until very recently comment editor of The Times. Um, He's a great authority, world authority, I'd say, on the Tory party as the founder of conservativehome.com. But for these purposes, perhaps more important is that he comes from the um, conservative Christian fellowship end of the party and was instrumental in setting up the Centre for Social Justice, which was probably the first conservative think tank dedicated to poverty and what society should do about it. Um, He he says he used to be an evangelical know-it-all who had God in a box, but he knows a bit more or perhaps thinks he knows a bit less now. Um, Next, Yasmin Alibi-Brown. She describes herself as a lefty liberal, anti-racist, feminist, Muslim, part Pakistani, and a very responsible person. (laughs) I'll leave you all to judge that. Uh, That's her words. Um, Yasmin came to Britain with the exodus of Ugandan Asians in the 70s did a master's in literature at Oxford, became a teacher and then journalist, and now writes a weekly column in The Independent, uh, in which she often grapples with the question of what it means to be a Muslim in Britain. And if you haven't seen her one-woman show, I highly recommend it. And finally, Stephen Gross, who is a psychoanalyst, born in America, educated at Berkeley and then Balliol. Uh, He teaches at the Institute of Psychoanalysis and UCL. And most of you probably know him from his fantastic book, The Examined Life, 
which was published last year. It was serialized as Book of the Week on Radio 4. Normally when I hear these, I think, oh good, I don't have to buy the book now. But when I heard that serialization, I immediately went out and bought the book. Uh, and it is a collection of case studies of his patients that sparkle like little jewels of insight. It's really brilliant. So I'm going to come join you all. And I'm going to ask everyone in turn, starting with Julia, to say just in a couple of minutes or so what faith and belief mean to them and perhaps a couple of general points about what they might mean in the world. All right. Well, um, I think I've got given the starting uh, pistol because I suppose I'm the only professional religious person uh, here, and there are members of my congregation out there. So uh, to those of you who are used to seeing me in a pulpit, apologies. I also want to say to M.A., um, in response to your joke, I had a very, very orthodox Jewish great-aunt who also lived in a Maison Artois in Paris, because that never worried her at all. <laughs> and she always did the football pools on the basis that you needed to give dear God a chance. <laughs> I take the opposite view. Um, we Jews aren't very good at theology. We're not very good about saying what we believe or indeed knowing what we believe. And one of the things I love so much about being Jewish is it doesn't require an abdication of the intellect. Edmond Flegg wrote about Judaism and saying, I'm a Jew because Judaism doesn't require abdication of the mind. And I think that's true. So what does it mean? It means a variety of things. It means belonging to a community and knowing who you are. It means accepting the obligations that that community and that way of life uh, set for you. And for examples I would give, so for Jews particularly, uh, all of us have a refugee, immigrant or whatever background. So it means an obligation to recognize where you come from and have fellow fe feeling for others who might be in that position. It means recognizing that charity isn't about generosity, but about duty, certainly up to 10% of your income. And it means recognizing that you are in a community with people who you may not always agree with, you quite often won't like, and you actually have some fellow feeling and obligations to each other, and then together uh, have obligations beyond your actual community. I have very strong views about what people who belong to a faith community need to do. But perhaps the most interesting thing for this particular panel is what they shouldn't do. I think what they shouldn't do is say they're always right, because how would they know? Because nobody can be certain. I don't think there's only one way to God. I was desperately upset when the previous chief rabbi in this country was criticized for writing in a book that he thought there were different paths to God, and the ultra-Orthodox said he couldn't say that. In my view, there are different ways to God, and you can be a perfectly decent, responsible person without believing in God. I think that people of religious faith should not set out to have wars with people because they come from a different religion, or more commonly, because they come from a different bit of the same religion, even worse. But I do think, on balance, and it is a very narrow tipping point here, that religious belief, because of the standards it set and the moral values it has, has probably been more a force for good in the world than not. But it's pretty marginal. Thanks, Julia. Tim. Um, well, I was uh, brought up in an army home, and I started going to church in an army church where the chaplain was employed 
by the Ministry of Defense rather than the Church of England. And when I used to go to church, I was in the choir and the general sat at the front of the church nearest the altar and then the row behind was the brigadier and his family and then a little bit further behind was the colonel and then you went down major captain and you had the poor squaddies right at the back of the the church and that was really my introduction and my early exposure to Christianity and church and where it's going. I think it gave me my early understanding of what it meant to be a churchgoer and it meant to be a Christian. And it was a very ordered, very hierarchical, very almost like the soldiers as they left the church, they, they did a sort of a uh, lined up to wait for the, uh, for the general and the brigadier to leave. And it was structured, it was drilled, it was argumented, it was arguments, there was a moral code, there was there was right and wrong. And I think that understanding of, of belief, of Christianity, stayed with me for a, for a very long time. And the distinction I think I perhaps want to draw on today to answer your question, Mary Ann, is where I started and where I've ended up is, a, is the difference between that, which in a way I would describe as Christianity, um, and the idea that it's a settled thing that there is this thing that you can know, that you can understand, that has structure and order. Um, and what I think where I am now, which is a much more relational belief. And when people, uh, one of my favorite Christian writers is someone called Philip Yancey, and he was sat on an aeroplane uh, a little while ago, and inevitably the, pa the passenger next to him said, to describe what you do, etc., describe himself as a Christian writer. And the, the person sat next to him immediately said, oh, what do you think about homosexuality? And that, I think, is the danger with where Christianity has ended up, not particularly in America, where Philip Yancey is from, but Christianity has become a moral code rather than a relationship and a journey. And I like to think of myself now as someone who follows Jesus Christ every night, uh, before I go to bed, I try and talk to uh, God through Jesus. I talk to the person who I think created me and saved me. And it, but it is a relationship. I'm constantly learning now. And it's from that relationship with, with Jesus that I have relationships with everybody, with everybody else. And my favorite uh, Bible story, the one that inspires me most, is is the story of the, of the prodigal son. Uh, I'm sure familiar from people of all religions and, and none. And it is a story of you know, a number of incredibly interesting characters in there. There's the wayward son. There's the, the, the son who misbehaves and squanders fortune. There's the, the older son who's jealous about the, the wayward son's waywardness and then his, his return. There's the father that's forgiving him. There's the laborers who relate to the, the father. And it's in this dimension of us all having relationships and Christianity being a journey is, is where I, is, is how I describe my, my faith now. In terms of the, uh, the broader questions, I think Christianity has been harmed a lot in this country by becoming so close to the state. Um, I think it's been harmed when it's politicized, when it seeks to be popular, when it seeks to um, pursue the fashions of the, of the day. But my, my contradiction is that 
I think Christianity is generally, and this is, I think, where I would agree with Julia, a force for good, like other religions in public life. Even in a country like America, which is seen to be the Bible Belt often has a, a bad reputation, it's encouraging America to think outside of itself, challenging it on issues like aid and foreign policy and compassion to the poor. Again and again, in movements throughout our history, it's been people of all faith, whether it's the abolitionist movement and slavery, whether it's the Jubilee debt forgiveness campaign in the last 20 years, people of faith have often been at the heart of those movements. So the engagement with public life distorts religion, but I think benefits um, society. Great, Yasmin. Um, I just want to give a little bit of an outline as to where I was and where I have not yet arrived. I think it is, as Tim says, a, a journey without necessarily a destination. It is just a, a walk. Um, I was born into a Muslim community which is um, so loathed and hated by mainstream Islam that our dead cannot be buried in their graveyards. And it's nice Englanders who've given us a plot in Surrey to, bury, to, to die and be buried in. So I'll be very English when I'm buried. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a quite a rebellious little religion. It, it's Ismaili Shiaism. Um, and it's always been very evolutionary um, and intensely personal. So your relationship is... In, we have ritual, we have prayers twice a day before dawn, dawn and after dusk and so on. But the main thing is you are in connection or you try to be with your God. It's a very intensely intimate personal relationship. I believed in none of this when I was growing up. My mother was very devout. My father was crazy, um, always quarreling with everybody, including the mosque leaders and excommunicated. I went to mosque because it was a great place to meet boys. Um, I found both my first boyfriends there, and widows were allowed to sell you chickpea stew outside. And that was what we went for, to meet boys and eat the chickpea stew. Um, nothing. I, I was very close to my mother. I did the right thing, but it meant nothing. Then the Salman Rushdie um, incident crashed into all of our lives. And I felt obliged, I was working at the New Statesman at the time, where uh, quite a, I, I, in my view, an unacceptable, visceral loathing of all Muslims seemed to kind of rise in what was a left-wing uh, magazine. And across the country, and people felt at liberty. People, I thought, were liberals and left and uh, internationalist, felt... <laughs> license to stay, say what they want, and they still do. Uh, Martin Amis, not that long ago, said stuff. So I came out, falsely as it happens. I said I was a Muslim, whereas when I looked at what I was, I was actually lying. I was born a Muslim, but I hadn't really thought about it, done anything about it. I'd been nagged by my mother. And out of that political gesture, if you like, because the conversation was so one-sided at the time. Julia remembers. Very well. Very few Muslims were getting a voice anywhere to say why they were angry with this book. It, in fact, my editor then banned such voices from the New Statesman, which led me to leave the magazine. Um, it's because under freedom of speech, what kind of freedom of speech was that if you didn't want to listen to why these people had felt this way? 
But as the years have gone by, this political declaration has more or less gone. You know, I don't like being the kind of Muslim now who's arguing out there. And it's become intensely personal and spiritual. And like Tim said, I talk to God at night. And I've become very uh, kind of gripped by this thing called faith. And now I think there's a big difference between faith and religion. And faith is on the inside, and it's quiet, and it's mine. And religion is noisy, a bloody nuisance, and a problem. <laughs> and I don't know how to kind of put these two things together. There are three other things that I'm very quickly going to mention why the religion does. I get periodic um, emails from Richard Dawkins uh, saying, how can an intelligent woman like you be religious and be part of this nasty, stupid religion? <laughs> and I don't answer anymore. <laughs> but I, I think I should. Um, because I think there are three other very important reasons. It connects me to my mother and to my mother's friends who were such a part of my life. And they're more or less all gone now. And so when I pray, I am with them, wherever they are. As an immigrant, and Julia's mentioned this, the mosques, our mosque is opposite the VNA, connects me to a past that's dying. My two children are absolutely uninterested in who I am, where I came from, my religion. Actually, they're so British, they don't give a damn about me. Um, I'm a, a bloody immigrant to them. And <laughs> so all this is kept alive for me. And the final thing that it does give me is something that my mother always do things. She said, there were different roads to God. And if you, if you really have faith, you have to be modest and humble. So those are the reasons. And I think they do matter, actually, more and more. Thank you. Stephen. I was thinking about things that people said and something that you said, Yasmin, about um, religion being noisy. And a lot of the people who come to see me want religion, but without religion, they want to have that experience. My experience as a psychoanalyst is very different. It's that uh, people who come to see me are in pain and that most of them have lost faith. And they've lost faith either perhaps in organized religion or in God, but they've certainly lost faith in other people and in themselves. And so analysis and the process of psychoanalysis, part of why it takes so long, is a kind of um, two people getting to know each other. Uh, as Tim was saying, a kind of relationship of somebody to someone else and thinking about things together. There are many, many ways, I think, in which people come to lose faith in themselves or other people. Um, but. I thought just of one immediately as people were talking, because this does seem to relate to religion, is that um, uh, Andrew Solomon in his book, Far From the Tree, talks about the difference between love and acceptance. And people can feel loved in their family, but that doesn't mean that they feel accepted. Um, and he's very good at pointing out the differences between parents and children and looking at all these. And in his own life, he talks about his homosexuality. And he said that his mother could accept his dyslexia, but she couldn't uh, accept his homosexuality. And what that meant was, and she loved him, uh, but it meant that she didn't have words or talk to him about who he was. And so these aspects of himself became internalized in a kind of way which was shameful and embarrassing and difficult. 
And that leads to a kind of depression and a kind of distortion inside where we are suffering. And I think it's pretty easy to see how some people have that relationship to religion, that there's a should, I should be this, but I am this. And that gap of acceptance and who we are opens up, becomes greater and greater, and there's more and more suffering. And in a way, hopefully what analysis has, I think, at the core, which is very radical, I think the most radical part of good therapy or counseling or psychoanalysis is a radical acceptance of the person that comes to see you, that you start with who they are and you just are trying to understand. So in the, what analysis is trying to do is in a way, and it takes time because it takes us a very, very long time to trust another person. And people may think that they trust, but it, it just takes a very little. But I think in the end, ultimately, if analysis is successful, that person has a kind of restored faith in themselves and in another person. And it, it, it is because they've come to understand themselves better. As I was listening, the other point that I thought I would make just in, in this opening comment was um, something Julia said about responsibility and duty I found very moving too. And about, um, so paradoxically, at the end of an analysis, um, a person... Well, there's a st something happened recently. I'll tell you the story. A few weeks ago, a mother came to see me, and she'd had some, what I took to be good news, which was she was told that day that her son, who was doing well, at, well reasonably well at school, um, was not dyslexic. But she was rather depressed by this <laughs> um, because she thought her child should be very special and the best in the class. And of course, there's that gap again between very special and just being ordinary. And I think religion can remind us of our commonness, the things we have in common with other people in a community, uh, our ordinariness, and that it's the world that's special and that we get special things from the world and from other people. Um, and also, I think religion sometimes alerts us to being... Um, on the lookout for moments for gratitude. So like thinking about God at the end of the day, things that you're saying or thinking about. Um, and I th think at the end of an analysis, hopefully people are now less involved in that. This is just one way people feel pain, but that kind of separation of what I should be and who I am. And they're more alert to um, moments for or opportunities for gratitude. I think of the blessings that one says, ordinary things of saying grace or things like that are that are built into religion are that we should all try and think about the world and be grateful for the things that are presented to us. Great. Well, I was interested by what you said there because, Julia, God barely came into what you said and you were talking about the same sort of thing, the rituals, what religion, how religion tells you how to live, how to get on with your family, with your community, how to help other people who are more in need. Does God have to be there at all for us to live like this? God doesn't have to be there at all. Uh, in fact, what most Jews do is they live as if, they behave as if, they pray as if, they believe in God all the time. But I think if you ask many members of my community, and I'm not going to do a survey, but if you ask many members of my community, I think you'd find that some of them believe in God most of the time, and some some of the time, and not all the time. And I'd be asking Stephen why he isn't a member of my congregation, actually. Yeah. Because he doesn't seem to me to say anything very different mm. from what I would say. But I you, think there is something... You are an atheist, right? Yeah, I don't well, believe, really. but I... Yeah, but, like Shabbat candles. Yes, but uh, I see these moments as... And again, I think that's a kind of moment for gratitude or exactly. as a family but to stop during the week. Gratitude to what? Um, to, often to other people, to things that have happened, a kind of sense to of the, the world, world of... 
to the world, I to see, things I think that have that's happened. some sense of the outside and the beyond and the creator, yeah. which is what I would say belief in God is. But Jews are very bad at theology, which is why, <laughs> because it would take me about four hours to go through some of this. But perhaps the best example I can give you is the greatest theologian, Jewish theologian, of the, of the, actually, that Britain has ever produced in, in, within the Jewish community was a man called Louis Jacobs. And Louis Jacobs was asked by Catholic pub- publishers, Darton, Longman and Todd, to write a book on Jewish theology. And they wanted the authoritative volume, you know, tell us what Jews believe. And he said, I can't. And they said, look, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're a rabbi, you're the most distinguished rabbi, you were going to be chief rabbi till you wrote your book, We Have Reason to Believe. Write it. He said, no, no, you'll have to accept it. I'm going to write a book called A Jewish Theology. (laughs) And the book, which is still the best book on Jewish theology out there, has mainstream Jewish opinions in bold print and then minority Jewish opinions on the same issue (laughs) in small print at the bottom of the page. And for the very minority opinions, little notes, and you can look them up at the back. And that's what (laughs) Jews are like. And two Jews, three opinions... I'm not a liberal democrat. I'm not a liberal democrat. Failed. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Um, so, but but I think there's a real. It's a real issue here. You know, two Jews, three opinions isn't a joke. We're like that. We don't have this solid um, theological belief that people would. In Christianity, I think, I mean, I think you you may not hold it, but I think many Christians would say, you know, you really do have to say the creed. You really do have to stick to various articles of belief. We're not very good at it. And that's why it's more difficult to talk about God, because if I were going to talk about my own spiritual life, I do pray and I lead prayers a lot. But when I really have a sense of the spiritual, isn't so much that, particularly if you're leading prayers, you're often stage managing, so you're just worrying about what's going to happen next. But when I really feel it is in quite intimate moments when members of the congregation have something really terrible happen to them. So in some ways, not so very different from some of what Stephen is saying. So when somebody's dying or people are facing somebody else's death, um, when people have lost a child, for instance, how can this happen? How can this be allowed? How can God have done this to me? What was God doing? People say it about the Holocaust. You know, where was God during the Holocaust? And it's talking those things through and thinking about the, the firmness of my belief, my belief that God gave us free will and it's up to human beings to do things, where I think I have a sense of the spiritual. So it's a bit more complicated, and I don't think I can say it all in two minutes. And not as sort of individually relational as... Not as individually relational as what either Yasmin or Tim have said. Yeah. Tim, is there, what's the difference between faith and belief? Oh, that's a huge, <laughs> a huge question. I, look, can I answer it in this way? I think, um, relating to what Julia has just shared as well, for lots of um, Christians and where I started, you know, the Bible is all there is in a way. You have this book, and that, I think, produces a kind of belief that is almost, but it's a lifeless hmm. belief. And I think, you know, John Wesley encouraged Christians of his time to think that, you know, he talked about the quadrilateral of belief, and he said, we have the book, which is the Bible, but we still have our brains, reason, um, and we have experience, you know, the the life that um, uh, we live, the relations that we have, and then we have this supernatural element as well, which is the prayer, the the, the divine, and I suppose uh, how I would def- describe a difference between faith and belief was a real living faith will live in all those four things that you won't. You will take the Bible seriously, but it, you will be informed by your relationships with God, um, with 
the, uh, tradition and with and with um, and with your the nature of your um, communion that you that you work with. And where does mind come into this? Oh, I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, to me, the 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 way mind is related does have to do with things like confidence. The, the, this, if you think of the synonyms for the word faith of um, belief, trust, confidence, um, those things are so important and they're incredibly important in human relations. And so much of what we know now about how children are born and how they're raised, and actually a lot of these things, you know, I think faith, people get interested in it when they do have children. There are these things like um, uh, how the mind is grown, how the mind is developed, how we develop as human beings needs to be able to, to have faith in terms of trust, belief, confidence in the people around us, uh, the family and the community that we're growing up in. But not necessarily faith in God. Not, I don't think necessarily, no. But it's interesting. I think um, in the old days, like you know, with Freud, it was you know, his book, The Future of an Illusion, and he thought of, he thought of religion as an obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, all the rituals and stuff like that. And at no, I don't think analysts think like that nowadays because, um, again, Tim's point of a relationship, we would be very curious about, well, who is this God of yours and what are his or her attributes and what is it that you're asking? And we, people would be more interested in what it was that you wanted, what it is that you needed this, in this companion that you were seeking. Um, so we're more interested, I, I don't think, in just in, in a kind of critical thing that it's a delusion or an illusion, but really more why this, in terms of object relations, why this object for you, you know, why your devil has those qualities, why your God has these qualities. Um, it would be the thing I think an analyst would be listening to. I should imagine the atheists in the audience seething at the moment. <laughs> Hardly anybody who's said anything about the harm that religion has done. You alluded yeah. to it, Yasmin. Yes, and I think, well, atheism does a lot of harm too. I think it's, it's uh, foolish to say atheism has wholly been a force of good in the world. But uh, this is, again, the argumentative part of religion, which I think doesn't help anybody. But I do think, though, that there is something important beyond the here and now. Um, and I know conscience, we all have conscience, but I think because I've got this faith now, the voice of, my, of conscience is much stronger now in my head than it ever was. Um, and uh, so, but you know, I could, I, I could be, a, you know, if I'd been born different, I would have been a Quaker quite happily. But a humanist would say it is quite possible to lead a good moral life. Yeah, I've never said it isn't. But for me, for me, it is. It really is to do with this idea that I don't know everything. We all, we humans aren't the ultimate answer to the universe's um, challenges and solutions. And there is something else which I barely can understand, but I want to touch. And that's really important. Julia. I wanted to come back on the point about um, religions doing harm, because plainly religions can do harm, and quite often do. And that doesn't mean all the individuals who are part of those religious organizations are willing to do harm. And it may be that their people are very good faith, but they manage to organize themselves to do quite a lot of harm. And they do it in a variety of ways. And um, you, you alluded to it, Tim. I mean, they do it by uh, being absolutely vile to people who don't conform to whatever they say is the right. So, so I mean, the good example was the homosexuality. But there's also sorts of examples about, you know, um, 
I, I was Chancellor of the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland because I'm neither Protestant nor Catholic, and they weren't very good on women either. So, you know, I kind of scored on lots of points. And I remember talking, you know, at a very civilised, middle-class Northern Irish dinner party, Protestants and Catholics around the table, and me. And I remember saying, you know, it just seemed completely bizarre to me because basically they all had the same faith. And they all turned on me <laughs> as if... Somehow I was completely crazy because clearly being a Protestant Christian and being a Catholic Christian were not at all alike. And I just sort of said, well, you know, looking in from the outside, they seem to have more in common than either does with me. Um, and I think that's... You created unity. I, I created unity and I left early. Um, but it's, I think that's really important that, that quite often people within a religion choose to have, because, because religions are fissile, they fall apart, and um, they choose to really go for each other, Sunni and Shia being a very good example at the moment. We're seeing that I mean, hugely in the Middle East. Um, Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews are quite good at beating each other up too. Uh, so we do that. And I think religions can be quite bad, but I still think that... that and it's marginal, as I said at the beginning. I still think they're more of a force for good, but I do think that religions have behaved very... Organised religions and some religious leaders have behaved very badly, and I think that's pretty unforgivable myself. Right, let's open this up to the audience. We've got ten minutes uh, for Q&A so that I actually finish bang on time and get asked back next year. <laughs> <laughs> Who would like to start us off? Bit of dissent. Yes, at the back there, please. Have we got, we've got a mic coming up. Perhaps because it's the beginning of the conference, you could give us your name as well, please. Oh, just gone past him. Uh, the gentleman in the... Yeah, a couple of rows back with his arm up. There we go. Simon Barrow. Uh, I have a question for, for Yasmin. You mentioned uh, you could be a Quaker. And I Sorry, wonder, say that You mentioned that you could be a Quaker. Yes. Uh, if you've been brought up but anywhere near that. And I wonder whether that is because uh, that that is uh, a business of faith. It's really nothing to do with religion. Yes. And there's... Yeah. I think, or a Baha'i, I mean, I think there are some religions that seem not to need to have this constant battles. And sometimes I think the children of the book, which is how the Abrahamic faiths are described, are more prone to it, um, relatively speaking. Hindus have their own points of war. But I think, yes, faith, Quakers, Baha'ism, Ismailism, to a point to which I belong, are, um, don't do that. And, it, and they they're feel quieter more, religions. They're very quiet. Yeah, yeah. Yes. In fact, my people of my community absolutely hate it that I am a journalist, and I've become conspicuous. It's a very secretive religion. It does not like to be conspicuous in any way. Interesting. Yes, here at the front, second row. Hi, I'm Harvey Woodsmith. Um, my question is very simple. Why do you think that religions tolerate extremists? Good question. Okay. Uh, okay, Julie, you can start. Why do they tolerate extremists? Because religions, in part, always have an extremist 
edge. So speaking as a non-Orthodox Jew, um, you don't have very many sort of extremist, liberal and reformed Jews because it doesn't really go together. <laughs> but we would see some, you know, so the ultra-Orthodox community uh, in, in Britain or particularly in Israel, um, we, would, we would regard them as a bit nuts. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that a lot of the Israeli population are now saying to the ultra-Orthodox, come on, you know, shape up because it's about bloody time. Why do they tolerate that? Because I think... It's part of what forms religious organisations. I don't mean that it forms faith communities, but I think it forms you know, religious organisations because quite often the extremists like to set the tone. And one of the things I would say as, as a rabbi and now have, having quite a lot to do with, with other faith leaders is that the more liberal faith leaders of all faiths have much more in common with each other than they do with the more sort of fundamentalist and extreme within their own religion. But I do think the problem has been that it's very <coughs> often been that extreme view that set some of the original tone. But there's, also, a, there's a difference between... Sorry, if I could just interrupt. There's a difference between the gatekeepers, the guardians of the religion, because they believe in the truism of that particular religion, than real extremists who um, don't really represent the religion in any way, shape or form. And yet, it seems in most religions, they are constantly tolerated. And there, to me, there is a complete difference between those who are the guardians of what the belief is and the extremists. But apart from the Catholic Church, there's no one really in charge of most religions. And excommunication itself it has a bit of a bad name. So uh, is that not right? I mean, who, who in, in Islam would say you cannot be a Muslim because your views are too extreme? Yeah. Oh, but it so happens. The Imams have taken that control. Uh, the Mullahs have taken that control. My father was excommunicated for being too, uh, you know, crazy and standing outside the mosque and saying unspeakable things. So but then don't you just join another sect? Yes, but there are people who can exclude you. Okay. Um, with uh, difficulty, it, though, because yeah. you can always move on. I think yes, that's right. Can. And the lovers take you in. Yes. But I think, you know, this has been ever thus. That's the thing. It's, it's not new. This extremism uh, during the wonderful Moorish period in Spain, that was destroyed by extremists coming and, and kind of fighting those battles and getting rid of the softer Islam for a harder Islam. Everywhere you look, it's cyclical, it seems to me. And we're in that cycle at the moment. The Inquisition was pretty extreme. Extreme, uh, yeah, exactly yeah. so. Exactly so. Okay, yes, yeah. Uh, about four years back. Thank you, Peter Bale. Um, could I ask whether we, and I thought about this when I looked at the agenda, whether this agenda, and this is not to take away from the framework for living that Julia has described faith being, but could this not also be described as ignorance versus science? And I doubt whether anybody on the panel would be defending ignorance in a week when we've seen the, seen the, um, you know, the, the, the beginning of the Big Bang. Isn't, isn't faith and belief, to a large extent, about hanging on to ancient explanations? Yeah. Would you like to answer Richard Dawkins, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's all sorts of empirical evidence all around the world about actually um, people of high intelligence being religious. You know, you, I think that the, the views are perfectly compatible. And also sort of you know, point you towards history where when there have been great convulsions in most nations, including our own, in the darkest ages, it's been the monasteries in Ireland and in parts of England, parts of Europe, that have kept learnings and teachings alive. I think 
uh, you know, we've been a little bit perhaps dismissive in some of our remarks, or um, I have, about uh, truth, you know, in this, in this debate, and truth at being at the heart of religion. And I think one of the certain things for Christianity, even though I'm uh, not quite so sure of some of the truths of Christianity as I once was, I think Christianity and belief uh, is a hunger for truth. It's a hunger for understanding um, what's behind the world, how the world works. But not and necessarily so, scientific truth. Well, I think but it's the same hunger, it's the same spirit of inquiry that leads the same people to investigate the mechanics of the world as the morality that makes the world work. So I, I would um, go on for this discussion for a long time, but I would hit back very hard and say actually that I think belief throughout history has underpinned learning. It sponsored art in the past, it sponsored learning, it sponsored literature, and I think it continues to do so. Well, sadly, we can't go on any longer, I don't think, can we? Because it's three o'clock. Okay, Anthony at the back, who's had his hand up very patiently. Just uh, thank you for the panel. There was just a sense that God was out there. Had there been a, a, a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Sufi, uh, there was a sense that you have to passing to refer to the Quakers, the sense that God is actually the deepest identity within us. And look, sure, analysis can, can construct the ego, but if we want to truly know ourselves, then we, in the most silent depths of ourselves, know ourselves and find God, not as a construct of reality. Can I, can I yes, pick that up and say, of course, that would absolutely be what some Buddhists and Hindus and, and Sikhs and Sufis would have said. It would equally be something that could be said by Jews, Christians and Muslims, that the still small voice of conscience within you is in fact the deep sense of God within you. It's just we use different language. And I think one of the things about this whole question of the journey of faith is that we use different language, but I think very often we're trying to get to the same place. Well, that sounds a lovely note on which to end. So thank you very much to all the panel here. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.